Hi, and welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. This is Dr. Sadaf Lodi, and I would love for you to leave me a review of this podcast and also to share and like it and share it with your friends, see what they think, and let me know. I would love to shout you out on social media, and also I would love for you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN, as well as TikTok. I also have started a YouTube channel at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. I'd love for you to follow me on all of those channels. And most importantly, I'd love for you to become a patient. I am now accepting telehealth patients for sexual health as well as menopause health in New York and Michigan. So if you are a woman that is looking for a doctor that understands you and can actually take the time to listen to all of your concerns, reach out to me. Reach out at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. And I would love to see you as a patient. And now for the episode. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Welcome to the Muslim Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Salaf Lodi, and this episode is everything you need to know about intimacy and cancer. Uh, before I get into it, the first thing I want to make very clear is that I'm not giving any type of medical advice. So if you're having any issues or concerns, please see your healthcare provider. And if you have any questions about your religion, please speak with your friendly neighborhood religious leader. This is the Muslim sex podcast because I just happen to be a Muslim woman that speaks about sex. So today I have on with me a very special guest, Dr. Julie Monroe. And Dr. Monroe comes to us from New York. And Dr. Monroe, I'm so happy to have you here today. And I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our audience. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Um, so my name is Julie Monroe. I am a board certified medical oncologist. Um, I went to Cornell Medical School. I trained in the New York City area at New York Presbyterian Hospital and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And I practiced general medical oncology for over 20 years in Westchester County in Greenwich, Connecticut, which are the northern suburbs of New York City. Um, I had a very busy, thriving practice. I was uh, the chief of the Department of Hematology and Oncology at my hospital. Um, I had a reputation for specializing in women's oncology, so much of my practice was breast cancer and gynecologic cancers, although I treated all types of cancer. Um, and what I found in my 20 plus years in practice was that there were changes in healthcare that made it more and more challenging for me to give my patients and their families the time and attention I thought they really needed and deserved. Um, at the same time, I had family members who were diagnosed with cancer. Uh, my father had prostate cancer, my mother-in-law had bladder cancer, and my younger sister was diagnosed with breast cancer at a young age. And I kind of had to jump in and 
quarterback the whole process for these family members, um, make sure they got to the right doctors, understood what was happening, their diagnosis, their treatment options, um, and were able to weigh the pros and cons of everything. And, you know, my sister said to me at the end of the whole process, oh my gosh, how does someone go through this who doesn't have a sister who's an oncologist? And I realized there was a real need out there for um, extra support for people dealing with a cancer diagnosis. So I ended up, it was a difficult decision, but about six years ago, I left my full-time oncology practice and I started um, my current consulting practice that I do now. It's called Cancer Consulting Services. And basically I provide concierge um, extra support and second opinions for people uh, dealing with cancer. Um, and I found uh, this process to be very uh, satisfying for myself, but also for the patients and the families that I work with. Um, it's kind of a, a new uh, thing that I'm doing. There aren't many uh, oncologists out there providing this kind of support, uh, but I think there's a real need for it. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know that, um, you know, a lot of times when patients get the first and foremost, get the diagnosis, right? That in itself is very jolting and upsetting and just to process that information on its own, then let alone trying to navigate the healthcare system where both you and I know is very complicated. And um, it ends up being really, unfortunately, a lot of connections, right? And being able to get services, um, especially with cancer, when you need those timely services, it really makes a huge difference if you have connections or if you know somebody that can get you in sooner than, say, you know, you trying to make an appointment on your own, right? I mean, it really does make a huge difference, unfortunately, but that's really kind of the way it is. And, um, and so, yeah, what were you going to say? Well, I was just going to say, you know, what happened Again, like we started out as a private practice and you called the office, you got my secretary at the front desk and the call went right through to me. And it, there, all these barriers came into place where patients could no longer call the office. It went to a call center, which was in North Carolina, you know, hundreds mm -hmm. of miles away, yeah. or the patients were told, email the doctor through the patient portal. And, you know, that could take hours before anyone saw that message. So my patients have my cell phone. They know how to get me at any time. They text me, they call me, they email me. Um, and I try to reduce those barriers so that they can, you know, get in touch. They, they still have their primary medical oncologist that treats them, but I'm just right. there to be that extra support. Yeah. And, you know, I can see how that would be so valuable. I mean, just to, to be able to have another second opinion, you know, right at your fingertips and also be able to discuss the diagnosis and any questions and concerns. I mean, I think that's huge. So that's amazing that you offer that service. Um, so I know you did mention the types of cancers that you saw when you were in practice, but you said you also focused on female gynecology, spe specifically on some type of female cancers. What cancers were those? 
Um, well, I treated all types of cancer, but I developed a reputation um, for specializing in women's cancers. So breast cancer, ovarian cancer, cervical cancer, um, uterine cancer. Right. Right. Okay. So that's, that's really good to know and uh, really important information. You know, I'm just wondering if you have some tips regarding a cancer diagnosis, for example, like what should a person do once they get that diagnosis? What should they do? How can they get help? And, you know, who should they turn to when they get a diagnosis such as that? Well, I, I think they should make sure they really understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of times the answers are not necessarily readily available. As soon as you get that diagnosis, you know, that may just be a biopsy. And then there's more steps that need to be taken to figure out how advanced is this cancer? Is it localized to one area of the body? Has it started to spread maybe to the surrounding lymph nodes or has it even spread to other organs? So, you know, find out what kind of testing needs to be done to get all those answers. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes a little patience because people want answers right away and we have to get all the information. The other thing I would say now is that what we've learned about cancers is that not all cancers are the same. So just because you have lung cancer, we now learn there's many different types of lung cancer. Mm. And we have what's called biomarkers, which are different characteristics of the cancer that are going to help us know what's the best way to treat that cancer. Is it going to be with surgery? Is it going to be with immunotherapy or targeted therapy? And again, these tests to get these answers sometimes take time. So you may not have all the answers right away when you first get your cancer diagnosis. You be patient, make sure a full genetic analysis has been done on the tumor so that you know the right way to proceed with the treatment. Sure, sure. So, you know, I, I, I'm what, you know, what we talk about a lot on this uh, podcast are relationships and intimacy. And of course, cancer definitely impacts intimacy and relationships. And I'm sure you've probably seen that in your practice as well. What would you say um, is a common type of cancer? You know, something that comes to mind to me right away is, for example, prostate cancer, right? and uh, the inability for somebody that may have had their prostate removed to have a penile vaginal intercourse um, or to experience that type of intimacy. What would you say are the certain types of cancers that you see and how, has it, how does it usually affect intimacy? Oh gosh, um, know, you know, right? that's a big. <laughs> I mean, there's so many ways. I mean, first of all, forgetting about the type of cancer, any sort of cancer diagnosis, whether it's within the, you know, couple themselves or within the family for a a parent, a child, right? The stress of dealing with that and getting that diagnosis, what that does to someone's libido. I mean, you know, the last thing you're thinking about when you're dealing with a stressful information like this is, Mm -hmm. is sexual intercourse. 
Um, and then there's also um, the physical ramifications of having cancer. Oftentimes there's surgery involved. Sometimes the surgery can affect some of the sexual organs like breast cancer. You may need to undergo a mastectomy and, and how that makes a woman feel um, losing that part of her body. Um, you know, even having a hysterectomy or having the ovaries removed, you know, um, certain types of vaginal cancers, vulvar carcinoma. Again, um, there's more outward manifestations of that that affect our um, sexual sense of self. And like you said, for men, prostate cancer, very often the treatments we use for prostate cancer, whether it's surgery or radiation or even um, hormonal therapies can affect a man's ability to have an erection um, or even affect a man's ability to maintain urinary continence, which again, it, it's another thing that can cause people to um, lose their sense of self and their, their sexual well-being. Right, right. Yes. Now, you are so right about everything in terms of, you know, just a diagnosis of cancer, you know, inducing stress. And we know stress affects so many aspects of our life and uh, of our body and just the cortisol and then resulting in if we are under constant stress, then it results in adrenal fatigue and just the negative feedback that we know happens when you have constant release of cortisol and those hormones. And also, of course, when people undergo surgical, um, right, surgical treatment for their cancers and how that affects um, intimacy and relationships. But, you know, what I find is that uh, along with, of course, not only body image being affected and also different um, organs not or body parts not performing the way that, you know, a person may want them to perform is also that emotional connection right? Oftentimes patients may feel isolated and you would know that better than I would know, but you know, I'm sure that patients feel isolated and maybe they, they don't feel understood by their partner and then they themselves undergo body image issues. Maybe they don't feel like they're attractive anymore. Maybe they have some type of body dysmorphic syndrome, right? Where they find themselves to be not attractive or just not as human as somebody else that doesn't have that cancer. So I'm sure that plays a huge part in relationships. How have you counseled patients in the past that may be finding it very difficult to resume any type of intimacy, regardless, you know, whether it's physical or not, you know, emotional, intellectual, experiential type of intimacy with their partner? What have you seen and what have you suggested in the past? Um, well, I think, you know, sometimes it's a matter of finding a new normal. Um, yeah. People may not be able to do the things they used to do, but there's still ways you can be sexually intimate with someone. Um, it just not maybe it just may not be the way you used to. And the other thing is also being creative. You know, some of the, the treatments we use for um, cancers involve hormonal therapies that um, can cause a lot of vaginal dryness and discomfort uh, mm. with sexual intercourse. And I've heard anything from 
olive oil to coconut oil, and obviously the more traditional lubricants, but finding ways to obviously relieve those symptoms um, and, you know, reduce any pain associated with intercourse is important. Absolutely. Um, I know that recently, so, you know, there was a, there's a whole generation of OBGYNs that just do not feel comfortable prescribing hormone replacement therapy. And I think that has a lot to do with the WHI study that came out in 2001, which, you know, based on what it was doing and what it was trying to cover, I think there was a lot of confusion during that time. And uh, some of the information that came out of it was quite frankly, not correct. And I think that the North American Menopause Society has now come out with new guidelines stating, you know, who can go on hormone therapy and, and who should not. And also, um, you know, I think the recommendation now from that menopause society is that women can go on hormone therapy for the least amount of time to take care of their symptoms. Um, and of course, you know, they have to talk to their oncologist and we have to know if it's, you know, estrogen receptor positive and all of those things. So it's obviously not something that women would do on their own, but something in conjunction with their hematologist as well as their oncologist and their gynecologist. Um, but, you know, recent studies have come out and have shown that with local vaginal estrogen, right, most women can actually have that and that there is very little systemic. So for people that are listening that may not understand what that means, it means that there's very little hormone that goes throughout the rest of the body and that it's a very tiny dose of estrogen um, that acts locally within that vaginal tissue. And even that little amount actually is enough to help keep that tissue vitality alive and also prevent recurrent UTIs. And I think that there is a huge arsenal of physicians now coming out, both urologists and gynecologists. And uh, recently I also heard of a breast surgeon saying the same thing that um, the use of vaginal estrogen is actually safe. Uh, for women and that it makes such a huge difference in terms of intimacy, but even in terms of preventing recurrent UTIs and um, for that vaginal health. So I don't know if you've heard of similar things, but I know that there's a lot of research coming out in regard to that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, we, you know, traditionally were always concerned um, in a woman who had a history of an estrogen receptor positive uh, cancer about putting them on hormone replacement therapy. Um, but as you said, it has been looked at and studies have shown that low dose um, topical estrogen, whether it's with an estrogen containing vaginal cream or the S-string, uh, which is a ring that um, releases estrogen uh, into the vaginal area, seems to be safe for these women. So that's reassuring. Of course, we always usually try first to do non-hormone containing remedies, but if they don't work and um, oftentimes they don't work, then we, we do feel comfortable using an estrogen-based therapy. Right, and just like what you said, you know, most of the time, we know that like lubricants are very temporary, right? They don't last very long. I mean, there's tons of lubricants and there are different types. There's like what you had mentioned, there's, you know, there's that vegetable oil that people like to use, which is the coconut oil or, you know, but there's, you know, oil, there are water-based, there's um, 
silicone-based, there's different types of lubricants, and those lubricants are great, but of course, they're, you know, temporary. Moisturizers are good as well. And like you said, there's um, something called Intrarosa, which is that DHEA um, moisturizer, vaginal moisturizer that actually um, is good for people that may not feel comfortable with estrogen and so want something else. And so DHEA is great for that. And DHEA actually converts to testosterone as well. And so then uh, some women feel that it actually helps a little bit with uh, libido. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that really, if we're going to talk about something that really works and works really well is that vaginal estrogen. And so that it helps with the tissue and so that there is less friction when you know women decide if they want to have uh, the penile vaginal intercourse and it really is helpful for them. But like you said, you know, a lot of times we'll go with lubricants first. So, um, so is there anything that you would recommend to somebody? I know you had talked a little bit about it already, but for somebody like three take-home tips that you may recommend to somebody that, you know, once they get, what should they do? Once they get that diagnosis and, um, you know, should they go and seek you out first? Should they go and talk to their provider? You know, how should they maybe what is like a, an algorithm or something that you would recommend a stepwise process, I guess is what right. Well, I think, you know, most importantly, you want to find an oncologist who you feel comfortable with. Okay. Because you may even be with the person that is top of their field. They have a great reputation, but if you don't feel like you can ask them questions um, get your questions answered and feel comfortable in their office. Is the office staff accommodating and nice, or is it a nightmare every time you go there? Because very often your relationship with your oncologist is going to be one uh, that's longstanding and where you're right. going to have to go a lot. So you really have to feel comfortable with that person. So I would say go with your gut. Um, and if there's something about a doctor that just doesn't feel right, you don't have confidence in them, you don't feel comfortable asking questions in their office, then you may want to think about seeking someone else out. Um, the other thing I would say is educate yourself. Understand your diagnosis. If you are starting any treatments, understand what's the purpose of this treatment. Is my cancer curable? Or are we trying to cure this? Or is it more advanced and we're just trying to relieve my symptoms or make me live longer? Really understand what's happening. Um, and then the third thing I would say is don't be afraid to seek support. Mm. You are not alone, even yeah. if you feel alone. And sometimes people may have a very supportive family that's there for them. And they're not necessarily alone but they feel isolated because nobody mm. understands what they're going through. And there's really great support services out there. Um, there's uh, the cancer support community, which has sites all over the United States and even internationally Gilda's club, um, mm. which again has multiple sites and in most places, there's some form of support and even online. Now, you know, everything's virtual. Find a support group. Find people going through what you're going through. 
um, because that can really help. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think those are great recommendations. You know, if I could just add one thing is I would say don't be afraid to ask your doctor questions, right? And even if they're not able to answer it, hopefully they can find somewhere where they can find the answer. Or, you know, maybe they can refer you to somebody that does have the answer. I think a lot of times what happens is that especially when it comes to sexual health, is that patients, one, are not asked about it right? A lot of times they'll go into the doctor's office and the doctor will ask them about everything except that. And when they come, when patients have a diagnosis of cancer, that's one of the first things to kind of go by the wayside, right? And, and physicians don't, a lot of times physicians don't even feel comfortable asking because they don't know the answers and they don't know how to help their patients. Because I'm not, you know, sure about what you learned, but I know what I learned in medical school. I didn't learn anything about sexual health. I learned maybe, you know, two hours worth about like Masters and Johnson and the research that they did in like 1966 on old white men. You know, that was it. And that, and there's been, you know, a little bit of research since then. So um, I think that most physicians don't have the knowledge and don't really feel comfortable um, talking about sex and asking about sexual history and asking about, you know, especially with a diagnosis such as cancer, right? Like, how are you feeling? How is your relationship? Is there anything that you wish would change? Is there anything that you want, right? Or do you need help with something? I think that those are a lot of times questions that we're afraid to ask. And I think a lot of practitioners don't know how to treat menopause. And again, you know, being an OBGYN, I was not trained in my residency. I don't know if things have changed. I don't think they have because I recently worked at an academic institution um, that the residents just don't learn how to treat menopause. We, we don't learn the modalities. We don't know anything about hormone replacement. You know, because of the WHI study, a whole generation of OBGYNs were so scared, including myself, to prescribe any type of hormone replacement that we just never did. And so for years and years, women have gone with through, you know, hot flashes, night sweats, mood swings, brain fog, all of that stuff, palpitations without any type of treatment and thinking that there was nothing out there for us. So I think it just behooves us as the medical community to let women know that there are options and if they need help, you know, to seek help. So, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, the, the only other thing I wanna add is be careful about what you read online, because there's just so much out there now. Um, and, you know, particularly with cancer, it can sound scary. And again, not everybody's cancer is the same. So you may read what helped one person may not apply in your situation. So you really need to rely on your physicians to guide you. Um, so you want to have a good relationship with your physicians and for, you know, patients that have difficulty getting the support they need from their physicians, that's where I can come in and, and be there for them. Absolutely. And I think it's so important, the service that you offer, because as we know, you know, anyone that has had a loved one that had cancer or has cancer, um, it's so important to be able to kind of ask questions of another physician, you know, another hematologist, oncologist, and ask them one, you know, if, if you feel like they're your loved one is getting the correct treatment, and 
if um, if you have any concerns or if you feel like there there may be other options that maybe your oncologist doesn't know of, right? And I think you help with that as well. So, so for people out there that are listening that uh, may be interested in reaching out to you, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. Um, well, they can email me at jmonroe, J-M-O-N-R-O-E, M-D, at Cancer Consulting Services, with an S, dot com. Or they can go to my website, www.cancerconsultingservices.com. Okay, awesome. And are you on social media? Is there any way that they can follow you? Are you on Facebook? Uh, I'm, I'm just on Facebook right now, but working okay. on getting uh, TikTok up and running. <laughs> oh, that would be awesome. Well, we're looking forward to it. But thank you so much for coming on and you know sharing with us your pearls about cancer and uh, how to na- navigate that diagnosis and why it's so important to have somebody in your corner rooting for you and helping you navigate the whole process. So I think that's really amazing what you do. So thank you so much for doing that. Great to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, and well, I am done here and it's been real and really intimate. So remember, this was not meant to be any type of medical advice. So if you are having any concerns or if you have any questions about your own medical health, uh, please reach out to your provider and seek help that way. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and make sure you leave us a review, share and like the podcast. And if you leave me a review, I'd love to shout you out on social media. So be sure that you share it with all your friends and thanks for listening. Thanks.